What a generous community you are. Um, not only do you have me back here on occasion to share my varied and peculiar interests with you, um, but to invite my daughters today, too, to share their music. Uh, that first one was an original by Sonia, Blue Moon Birthday Boy. The second one was not an original. Uh, <laughs> it's apparently by some obscure artist named Joni Mitchell, I guess. She's from Canada or something. Who knows? I don't know. But, all right. Well, as you can imagine, I love to listen to them sing and play. Um, they don't always love listening to me talk. Charlotte's going to stick it out as long as she can, but if she gets up and disappears at some point, you'll understand if you're a parent. Uh, special thank you to Jess Williard, who's here today for Green to come out and lend professional support to our efforts. Uh, he, you can find him playing in Coopersville, in Muskegon, um, teacher at Guitar, uh, Guitar Center, and also a fellow uh, spiritual traveler. All right, turns out uh, what I'm about to say is part one, which is really presumptuous because nobody has asked for part two. Uh, <laughs> but I got to writing it, and where it resolves, which is in what I want to talk about, you know, where I wanted to go with it, which is to talk a little bit about uh, tantric Buddhism as an answer to this question about desire, I didn't get there until I needed to say all the stuff that I said uh, that I'm about to say. So if it goes really well, uh, I'd be more than happy, as you know, to come back for part two. If you're like, we're good, thanks. <laughs> uh, completely understand, no problem, really. I still, still love you guys. Anyway, just a little bit less, probably. <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh, we swim in desire. Our desires ebb and flow, of course, but our days are made up of desires of one kind or another. Can we talk about it? Seems like that's pretty much all we ever do, right? Uh, and just start, in English anyway, start by considering how many words we have for desire or desiring. Longing, craving, yearning, hungering, lusting, hankering, wanting, coveting. Not enough for you? Right. Urges, whims, fancies, asks, demands. And of course, two of my favorites, libidinous concupiscence, that's not a phrase, libidinous and concupiscence. Uh, a kind of lecherousness, concupiscences, that has its origins in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Their obsession with that just goes on, I don't know. Um, and makes its all the way, makes its way all the way through Freud, uh, who had a lot to say about it as, as well. All right, there's an argument to be, made, to be made that desire does, in one form or another, rule our lives for good and for ill. Um, we have to want stuff. Dick was making this point this morning in the pre-talk. It's like, wait. You have to want to do stuff. It's what moves us off dead center, is the way he put it. It's right. Nothing much happens without that. But here's the rub, of course. It's obvious, but I'm going to say it anyway. What we should want and how much of it we should want occupies every major philosophical, religious, psychological tradition, usually in the core there somewhere, and it occupies literature to a great extent as well. So on one hand, you think, well, we talk about it all the time, but it's not clear to me that we talk about it especially well or at least with all of the consideration that it deserves. That's fortunately why I'm here. <laughs> there is much to differentiate, of course. I desire a piece of cake is worlds away from my desire to complete, complete control of another person. Uh, both may begin in the unconscious and of course become conscious. My desire for cake usually is at the forefront of my consciousness. Uh, the other may or may not. I desire that my children be good people. It's not the same as desiring that other people come to harm. The ends of my desiring are quite different. 
the degree to which I desire what I desire differs as well as does my consciousness of those desires, right? Okay, so that's background. So we gotta narrow it down to talk about what we wanna get to here. The kind of desire I wanna speak to today involves a classic dilemma. I experienced it, maybe to some degree still do, maybe many of you in the room did or do or see it at least as well, and that is you show up on earth, nobody asked, but here you are, Indulge the pleasures of the flesh in the short time that I've got to indulge them, or obey the calling of the spirit, however you define that, which seeks to deny some of those pleasures of the flesh in order to obtain what are at least promised as higher pleasures. A tale as old as time, uh, and this calls for a little bit of spiritual autobiography. Uh, perhaps it'll be relatable, I hope so. I grew up thinking that the desire for God, for spiritual goodness, for a truly good life, meant transcending or suppressing the very real, sensual and carnal desires that were coming to more and more occupy the entirety of my being as I entered my teenage years. <laughs> this was gonna be a struggle. <laughs> I was gonna need a lot more resources than I had if the quote good side was gonna emerge victorious. My, some of you will be shocked by this, my Presbyterian upbringing was not really big on actual spiritual techniques. I might employ to stave off the consuming carnality of my desires. There's a lot to be said for prayer, but it was a losing battle, man, sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I felt myself slipping away from grace somehow. My bad desires, which strangely and guiltily didn't feel all that bad, overwhelming the desires I had to transcend being what I would later find out was characterized as simply being all too human. Uh, and frankly, you know, I look back on that time, it's a good thing it only lasted 50 years or God knows what would happen <laughs> to, to me. <laughs> all right, so I went to college, fortunately, and in my first semester I read a line from George Eliot that began to change everything that I had thought about desire to that point. I've always paraphrased it thus because I've never been able to find it again. Quote, who knows but that the impulse that compels the nun to bend down to kiss the feet of the statue of Jesus isn't the very same impulse that propels the most wanton of lovers. Holy abstinence, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> that opened a little crack in my mind, I gotta say. Liberated it some. I had assumed the two desires were and had to be dichotomous about as polar opposite as could be. Maybe not. Who was this George Eliot anyway? <laughs> the moment I read that, I had a sense she was right, but I couldn't articulate it any further than that line. Knowing of my interests and my youthful existential despair, a professor pointed me to Augustine's Confessions about a month later, and I read it quickly. Yes, Augustine seemed to be saying, what could, one could come to know the divine, the holy, but through the living of a quote-unquote sinful or sensuous, sensual life. Um, in other words, you want to go through the process that creates certain doubts or questions in your mind to which some representation of the divine is the, is the answer. Uh, Augustine was ruining his sexual exploits, his thievery, his walk on the wild side, warning those of us who would know the divine to do the same. Do as I write, not what I wrote about. Because then he goes on to write the city of God, which you've 
If you've ever sat down, try to read it. It's a very, very long piece that's a recipe for repression. It's like Augustine, it, here's my 19-year-old infinite wisdom. It's like, that Augustine guy, he drew all the wrong lessons from his own life. <laughs> Fortunately, I drew the right ones. You gotta go through it, man. Don't push it to the side. So my desires, I was coming to think, might have to be given a little more free reign to be taken out for a spin now and then, or always, until I got to the point, until I got to the point, who knows how many decades down the line, where I too could begin to regret some of the things I hadn't yet done. <laughs> I knew that I, or I even vowed that I would come to regret them, but I needed to do them first. All in the service of spiritual insight. <laughs> All right. My professors, glad to have a reader on their hands, continued to humor me. Next up in short order, Plato's Symposium. His literary, dramatic, funny, wise take on the role of Eros. Hence the quotes in the program. He had some of the leading lights of Athens, Pausanias, Agathon, Aristophanes, and of course Socrates come together. They're gonna not drink for a little while while they consider uh, what Eros is, make, uh, make their speeches in favor of Eros's purpose. All right, let me just highlight Aristophanes and Socrates for our purposes. Aristophanes is one you probably, probably the one that comes down to us that you hear the most about. The gods create us as essentially a whole, a circle, male-female or male-male, depending upon your particular uh, reading of the Greek. And then they become afraid that maybe this human in this whole complete sense is a little bit too powerful, so they split it, split it in half, cut it in half, and we spend the rest of our lives as humans looking for that other half, right? The, you complete me. It's from the Greeks, from Symposium. <laughs> That's where it comes from, right? And he gives that, and various interpretations that he's being funny, he's being sarcastic, he's making fun of, of other Greek traditions, or it's a you know, pretty good description of, of our desires for one another. Socrates listens to all this in his usual fashion, comes back, and he says, no, you know, let me tell you a story about this very wise woman that I met, Diadema, and here's really the process that you want to go through to discover uh, a love and, and in a kind of enlightened sense, to, to use desires for their highest purposes. Start by loving a particular body that you find beautiful. As time goes by, that passion will relax and pass to the love of all bodies. From that point, you pass to the love of beautiful minds, to knowledge, and finally you reach the ultimate goal, which is to witness beauty in itself rather than representations of it, the true form of beauty, this platonic notion of platonic form, uh, where you are the contemplating beauty qua beauty, and that's the highest goal for, for humans, right? Well, what's really kind of cool about what Plato does there, and he's not normally given to this sort of dramatic license, is that Socrates gives that speech, everybody goes, oh yes, you know, we will just meditate on beauty, qua beauty, whatever that is. And Alcibiades, the great Athenian general, strategist, by his own admission, very beautiful guy, <laughs> crashes the party, he's kind of drunk, he's been in love with Socrates forever, and he gives this really impassioned sort of, you know, no, Socrates, it's about you. It's about the traits that you embody. It's about wanting you. And it, Plato leaves you hanging at the end. You know, here's his mentor, Socrates. <gasps> Contemplation of beauty. Alcibiades, his character, messes it up. It's like, no, man, gotta get down to 
do the personal. All right. I'm, you know, philosophically minded. I'm all with Socrates, you know. I have no idea what it means to contemplate beauty qua beauty, but I'm intrigued. Uh, but then my little heart reads the Alcibiades and beats a little faster. You know, what is it about the particular traits embodied in the particular people that draws out this incredible desire that I and so many others are experiencing? Whew. I'm sorry, is it hot in here? Is it just me? <laughs> All right, so where am I left, right? I'm still a young guy on the question of desire. Uh, so here I, here I am, try to picture this with my hands. Eliot, the nun and the lovers. Augustine, the sensual life that may well lead one to the spiritual one, filled with potential real harm and regret along the way. And Plato, the love of things in themselves, and perfection in contemplation, or of very messy particulars. Could I choose both? It seemed experientially that both were being chosen for me. That's how I experienced it. But Western thought seemed to want to force a choice upon me, an either or. Disappointed and still a mess. That was me. I moved on to literature. Uh, Henry James, that, that quote comes from there. Milan Kundera, the, the wonderful, the unbearable lightness of being. Uh, Philip Roth, Saul Bellow, steeped myself in like older, kind of depressed Jewish guys who really, really, you know, uh, seem to understand the suffering that comes with the either thwarted or completed desire. Take your pick. doesn't matter. Um, all right. And then Shakespeare, of course, the rest of it, came across that famous adage that the mature mind can hold to oppose truths, right? We live in contradiction. We live in paradox. We live in ambiguity. Cool. <laughs> I'll just stay there for a while. Maybe that could work. Think um, young Werther from Goethe, or even the hero's journey, right? So that did work in my own mind for some time, actually quite a long time. Um, and it turned into, you'll uh, be happy to hear, largely a rationalization for a lot of really questionable behavior. Because <laughs> here's where it goes. What of those other beautiful bodies and beautiful minds that one encounters along the way? The ones that are serving as largely a means for one's own supposedly spiritual or literary ends. Try to explain. I did this, tried this many times. To someone that you are or were close to while you're breaking their heart, that it's actually all to the good. As soon, whatever happens to you, I'll be contemplating the beautiful qua beautiful or reaching spiritual truths or live in the inescapable ambiguity grasped only by a select few. You, the hurt, for the moment, can rejoice knowing you've played some small part in my process. <laughs> okay, maybe it didn't sound exactly like that. <laughs> Look, look, it's a confession, all right. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm proud of it. <laughs> but don't, don't sit there, especially the men. Don't sit there like, oh, how could you? <laughs> come on, come on. Uh, this attempt, by the way, to talk to people one has been close to uh, in, in the fashion that I just relayed is known technically as idiocy. Um, I don't recommend it, but here's... Here's where it goes in the, in the confused spiritual quest, uh, at least some of us. And that I think some men, I'm guilty of this, began to think of women 
qua women, not beauty qua, qua beauty, but women qua women as God, or eros in the sense that diadema meant similar traits, mysterious, ineffable, wholly other, powerfully seductive, seductively powerful. What I ended up doing, and I still see this all the time, is what women are so tired of having been done, being done to them, which is to give them a status as anything but human, refusing to see them simply as persons with their own agency, their own desires. If they are that, their own person with their own agency and desires, they might not have time to save us, to suffer for us, which is, of course, what God is supposed to do. <laughs> well, that would be a shame because I've got important things to do and get on to. All right. You see that there, Immanuel Kant raises his Germanic head and says, you know, maybe this treating people as means to an end is not the greatest thing ever. Maybe you should take some heed of that. And I do remember a woman at one point looking at me, like almost holding my face in her hands a long time ago, and saying, Michael, said, I really, I don't think you understand the damage you do. <laughs> and I don't think she thought it was funny. <laughs> but... But I took it in my narcissism, here's where the Freud quote comes in, in my narcissism, I'm thinking, oh, the damage I do to them. I th upon reflection, you know, maybe a month or two months or a year or 15 years later, she meant, oh, the damage I'm doing to, to me, to myself. All right, so where does that leave me? I'm getting on in years. I'm not enlightened, and my charms, such as they were, are fading. You feel free to refute that if you like. <laughs> I got time. I got nowhere to be. <laughs> and so I'm looking eastward, right? And, and I come across one of the great Confucius quotes. He said, boy, he said, you know, in a moment of, of honesty, he says, it wasn't really until I, I hit the age of 70 that I was able to live the moral life that I had always contemplated and spoke to. So why is that, Confucius? Because uh, the desires that thwart that have ebbed. <laughs> um, right? And I thought to myself, well, that's a long time to wait. But not so much anymore. Now it's just six years, and it's clear sailing. So, so that would be good. Uh, it reminds me of that Leonard Cohen line. If, you, you know, if you're a Leonard Cohen fan, the Tower of Song is great, great piece. My friends are gone. My hair is gray. I ache in the places where I used to play. I'm crazy for love, but I'm not coming on. It's like, I understand that in ways I never did. <laughs> Um, all right, so what are the options? Let's take stock here in terms of the, this spiritual quest that I, men, others are on. <sighs> to restate the problem, indulgence in the pleasures of the world, the pleasures of the body, there are so many, there are so wonderful, why not? Any number of people, because I've had this conversation and I've been this voice, said, yeah, what's exactly the problem? A series of pleasures that must be sought out and repeated over and over again. Sounds like a good life to me, right? Until it becomes not. Until it becomes pathetic and desperate and you just get tired of it. All right, that's one, status quo. Two, let's take refuge in literature, right? You all know the old quote, I go into a bookstore to find my life. Uh, the endless reassurance that living with paradox, with conflicting truths, with the messy particulars, is the best it's ever going to get. That there isn't anything more to shoot for. Everything else is a kind of delusion. You'll always be disappointed with that. All right, the pragmatists, a choice, a commitment. 
all right, Dwild, off to the monastery or the world, choose one, and then please would you shut up about it, you know? <laughs> and stop bothering the rest of us with your endless, oh, I don't know, I don't, I'm so torn and romantic and beautiful, oh God. <laughs> Deep, you know? <laughs> make, a, make a choice, shut up. Milk toast, a weak maneuvering between both. Right? I go to church occasionally, and sometimes, you know, I read like a spiritual text, and, you know, it's, a, it's, you know, it's like nothing. There's a kind of nothingness, a blandness to it, but um, not, not, un, not, not an unpopular choice. Five, is there anything else out there that might move me through the horns of my dilemma that gives sensuality its due and yet can employ that sensuality to different ends, resolving in a life where one was not at carnality's beck and call, but rather the carnality desired. Legitimate, because we're human, is transformed. You use the very passions that you are born with experience have, you might at some point been subject to in the service of what I'm gonna refer to as wisdom and compassion, as the tantric Buddhists say. And that's the path that I ultimately found. There are many, there, it's hardly the only one. There are therapies, there are mystical experiences, there's losing yourself in art, there's finding a very strong person and having that woman say, guess what, I'm not here to save you. <laughs> there are lots of ways to get there. What I wanted, what I would do in part two, if, if you want it, you know, just saying, <laughs> is, that the techniques that um, the ancient Indians and Tibetans discovered or invented um, that move these two desires closer together, not by denying one or the other, but by blending. Tantra, one of the, the in Sanskrit, tantra means to weave, right? And it's a perfect sort of understanding of what it means to use these desires that are so strong that change to rather than hoist yourself on the horns of the dilemma to move through that by weaving them together through visualization practices, through guru mantras, through all kinds of really interesting, powerful practices by understanding that these quote unquote gross or base substances have within them the power to transform and purify one's desires is, and I hold out to you the hope, for where um, the resolution of our own desires can be found. So I don't want to take more time than that today. I know we have the talk back. We got some more music from my children. But <coughs> I hope what I've done is lay out a handful of ways to talk about and think about these desires, the conflict, and um, pique your interest just enough so that in another 20 years, when I'm actually able to resolve this, I can come back and tell you how it's all worked out. Thanks a lot. <laughs>